really? You want a letter? <laughs> it's been said in regards to 2 Corinthians that this is kind of Paul's forgotten letter. And in my mind, that's kind of unfortunate because this is one of Paul's most personal letters as he writes to them. And as you read what is contained there in that book, you see Paul almost sort of pleading with them and trying to get a response from them. The kind of response he's giving to them and in his regards towards them and his affection towards them. And it's really a contrast. When you think about Paul at that time, and this is in the 50s, and you think about Paul about 20 years earlier in the 30s, and you read from the book of Acts where we're first introduced to the Apostle Paul, Saul at that time, and in Acts chapter 7, he's there holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr. Wholehearted approval of what's going on. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, it talks about how Paul, at that time, was still breathing threats and murders against the church, the disciples. And he was asking for letters from the high priests that he might go even as far as Damascus, and if he found any that were following the way that he could bring them back bound to Jerusalem. But then now that you read in 2 Corinthians and in chapter 2 and about verse 4 he says, I wrote to you out of affliction and tears that you might know the love that I have for you. What a difference, isn't it? And in chapter 6, he will go on to say, Our hearts are open wide to you. And he asked that they might respond, uh, respond in like manner. So keep that kind of in mind as we take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And you'll sort of see how Paul acknowledges that at this point in time there's this sort of kind of tension that exists between them, but he wants to resolve that. And so it almost seems as though they're asking for a letter. And Paul will respond and say, you are my letter. And he'll explain, you received benefit from what I did when I came there and the message that I brought there and it made a difference in you and it's continuing to make a difference in you. So in chapter 3, it's where's your letter? You are my letter. And this letter is from Christ written by the Holy Spirit and you need to understand that. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, essentially... It's them saying, where's your letter? <laughs> so based upon what Paul says here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? So based upon that statement, you kind of come to understand, once again, it's that idea of listening to one side of a phone conversation. 
And Paul is saying, you, you, want, you want me to bring a letter? <laughs> so they must have been saying something about, we're not real satisfied that you're a true apostle. And so maybe the next time you come, it might be a good idea. Maybe you could get a letter maybe from Peter or somebody <laughs> and bring it along with you. Kind of validation that you are a real apostle. And as you read that, I want you to stop and think for just a moment. And we're kind of amazed when we see that. Here's Paul, and we know him. But you've got to think about the date and the time and the place and the circumstances of what's going on. And so Paul's saying, are we at that point again? That I need some kind of recommendation, some kind of commendation? For somebody. So let me ask you a second. Let's suppose that you had an opportunity to sit in a room and you're kind of representing a congregation and you're saying, We're looking for a preacher. And so you've got this fellow by the name of Paul. And he'd kind of like to have the job. And so you say, well, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? And he might say something like, well, I've kind of had trouble pretty much every place I've gone. And I normally don't stay any place too long. In fact, the longest I've ever been in any one place was three years. Other than the fact that I was locked up for four years. So every place you go, there's trouble. Yeah, pretty much. And you don't ever stay any place very long. No. And you've been locked up. You got a wife? No. Got any kids? No. So you've never had your own home? No. I move around too much for that. And a lot of times in the places where I've been, I don't get a patent enough to support myself, so I, I, I normally have a second job. And you can tell by looking at me, I'm not very impressive. And by my own admission, and by the admission of others, I'm not a good speaker. So how about that job? <laughs> what would you think? I only say that to say this. So as you think about Corinth, now Paul did spend 18 months there, but when he left, <laughs> there was trouble. And so you can almost see, not trying to justify, but you can almost see where they would say, you know, maybe, maybe we need a letter from somebody. <laughs> a letter of commendation about you, Paul. And so essentially, the way Paul responds is, really? You want a letter? 
So listen to verses 1 through 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is, on the heart. And so Paul's saying, you want validation of my apostleship? I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the time that I spent there. I want you to think about the message that I brought. I want you to think about the work that I did while I was there. And I wanted you to think about how that changed you. And I want you to understand, you're the letter. And you're a letter that's going to be read by everybody. That's my validation. Now I want to pause right there for just a second. Long time ago, okay? (laughs) I hadn't been a Christian all that long. And I was talking to a younger man that had been preaching just for a while. And kind of about his career choice and so forth. And he said something along these lines and it stuck with me all these years. He said, you know, as a preacher, and he's speaking from his own point of reference. (laughs) He says, you know, as a preacher, if you ever get invited to preach at a certain event location in the southern part of the United States, which will remain unnamed, if you ever get invited to speak there, then as a preacher, you've arrived. I didn't think much about it at the time. But over the years, I've kind of rolled that over in my mind. So if you get invited to preach at some certain event, then as a preacher, you've been validated. You've arrived. Think about that for a moment. How would it be that a congregation would ever say, you know, as a group, we've arrived? Would that be, you know, we offer certain sort of special classes for various people or certain benefits for people or we have some kind of social thing going on. We've grown to that point where we can offer all these things. As a congregation, I think we've kind of arrived. 
Paul says, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote. 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, and begin about verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What did Paul just say? I came, I delivered a message. And that message changed you. This is what you were before. But that message changed you. And now you are a letter to be read of all men. And so Paul wants them to understand that the changes that occurred in their lives and the freedom that they were experiencing at that time, the freedom from sin and for immorality and adultery and drunkenness, fornication, covetousness, thievery, all those things that he mentions, that happened because of the message that he delivered Notice in chapter 3 at verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Verse 17 first. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now you've been freed from all of these things. It's Christ in that message that brought a change to your life. What Paul's saying is, this is where Christ, the healer, met the hurting. This is where He restores self-worth. This is where He removes the stain of sin. This is where He removes the guilt. This is where the conscience is cleared. This is where you're forgiven. This is where you're restored. This is where God took broken vessels... And he took something very precious and put it inside of them. And that changed you. So you know what that says? Back to my original point. That Paul, that's what Paul is saying. I'm a whole lot more interested in delivering than I am at arriving. It's because of the message. Paul will write in this same book two chapters later. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
a new creation. And so Paul says, you want a letter? You are my letter. And Paul wants them to understand. They are the letter of validation. And this letter is from Christ. And it's written by the Holy Spirit. And it's written on their hearts. And it changed them. And God wants everybody to read this letter. You see what happens when Christ is in a person? Starting at verse 3. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills But the Spirit gives life. See what Paul's saying? You want authentic Christianity? You want validation? You are the validation. See, because in my first letter, I wrote to you and said, this is what you were. But because of the message, and he's plainly stating, not because of me, but because of the message. This is what changed you. That's the reason why you are the way you are near now. And so the difference is that covenant written on your heart. And so they're saying to Paul, where's your letter? And Paul's saying It's not about me. It's about the Lord. Where's your letter? It's not about me. It's about you. And what the Lord did. And how he wrote his covenant on your heart. So now I want to pause again right there. Think about what Paul has said. I came. I delivered a message. That message all credit given to God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, that message changed you. That's the validation. And he said that was written on their hearts. But we need to understand the significance of what Paul is saying. And what he's saying is, this is God, through Christ, using the Holy Spirit to write on your heart. Under the old law, God had given commands, and that's what Paul is making reference to. And that his law had been written on tablets of stone. But through that law, 
it was never really accomplished the desire for them to really seek after to really follow after God the way that they should have with all their heart and so even while that old law was standing through Jeremiah God was saying there's going to come a time when I'm going to give a new covenant and I'm going to write my laws on their minds and on their hearts so even while the old law stood, he was saying that there's going to come a time when I'm going to give a new covenant. So I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. And I think you'll probably recognize this. Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. Beginning at about verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I want you to notice verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You ever heard just that? That's sometimes referred to as the Shema. And that's a prayer that was prayed by the Hebrews. That prayer is still uttered today by the Jews. That prayer has been prayed for thousands of years. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And that prayer is prayed, prayed morning and evening. And you know why they do that? You know what they're saying? When they say, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, in essence what they're saying is, Lord, Help me to love you. Help me to serve you with my all. I want you to have all of me today. Everything I have, it's yours. Well, I ask you a question. How'd that work out? said that prayer every day morning and night help me love the Lord thy God but down through the years down through the generations they always struggled with that didn't they and they had t trouble loving God and loving their neighbor and keeping the law but they would pray that 
over and over and over again. So I'm going to focus in on just one word from that prayer for just a moment. Because I think it will help us to understand what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3. And the word I want us to focus in on is that word heart. And that comes from the Hebrew, which is labah. Now, in these day and times, and with the benefit of modern day science and modern day medicine and so forth, oftentimes when we use, when we use the word heart, we kind of have a certain concept in mind. Although sometimes we use it in various ways. But in the scriptures, they oftentimes use that word heart in various ways. They didn't have exactly the same understanding that we have about the physical body and about all the ways in which it works. And so they used the word heart in various ways to describe various things. And so I'm just going to mention some of these to you. One that we would readily agree with, I believe, is found over in 1 Samuel, the 25th chapter, in about verse 37, and it's talking about a man by the name of Nabal who was married to Abigail. Some of us might remember. And in 1 Samuel 25, making reference to Nabal, it says, His heart died within him, and he became as stone. What happened? <laughs> Sounds like a heart attack, doesn't it? Now that way of using the word heart, we, we would readily identify with. Yeah. If your heart dies within you, <laughs> you will become like stone. But the word heart's used other ways by the writers of the Old Testament. One of the ways in which they use the word heart indicates, suggests, is to know something. And in Psalms 119, the psalmist says, I treasured or laid up your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. In other words, I read, I studied, I learned so that I would know. And I treasured it in my heart. Well, it was more like the mind, the place where you know. In Proverbs, it talks about how wisdom dwells in the heart. And he's talking about in our understanding. In Mark, the second chapter in verse 8, Jesus makes a statement in regard to them reasoning within their hearts, within their minds. So the writers suggest, and we would agree, that heart has to do with that physical part of life, but also heart as they use it is that part where we think and where we reason and where we understand. In other words, they would say, as you look out at, out at life, it is with your heart that you kind of make sense of the world that is going on around you, and you make certain decisions about it. 
So you think and you reason and you understand. But they also use the word heart to describe our emotions. For instance, over in 1 Samuel, the first chapter, when it talks about Hannah and she couldn't have children, her husband asked her, Why are you sad in your heart? That's an emotion. And they identify it with their heart. Joshua, the second chapter, on the other hand, as the children of Israel are now finally getting ready to enter into Canaan and going to conquer it, And those inhabitants hear about the fact that they're coming. It says that their hearts melted within them. They were scared. (laughs) And so they understood there were certain dangers. So, but the writer said their hearts melted. Judges, the 16th chapter, talks about the fact that there is joy in the heart. But in all those instances, it's talking about emotions, sadness, joy, and fear, and those kind of things. So it has to do with physical life, it has to do with intellect, and it has to do with emotions. But the heart also has to do with choices. It has to do with your will. David, it said, had it in his heart to build a house for the Lord. That's what he desired to do. So Nathan, in 2 Samuel the the 7th chapter, told David, whatever is in your heart to desire it, then so do it. So he's saying, this is what you want to do. You've made up your mind you want to do it. Go ahead and do it. God's one stepped in and said, no, you're not going. (laughs) But he said that was your desire. That was the choice you had made. And so when we think about heart and the way it's described in the scriptures, it's our thinking and it's our emotions and it's our desires and it's our will. The writer of Proverbs, the fourth chapter, in about verse 23, says, Guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. I like the way he says that. Because we use that phrase today. You got any issues? Well, the writer of Proverbs is saying, that comes from your heart. It's the way you think about things. It's the way you feel about things. It's the desires that you have. And oftentimes based upon those, that's where you make a determination of what you're going to do. And so he said, out of your heart comes the issues of life. But he says, you want to guard that. Because that's going to determine how you live. Keep that in mind. I want to read to you from Jeremiah, the 17th chapter. 
Jeremiah 17, and I'll explain in just a moment, you have to keep in context what this is saying. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, sometimes it's set forth. We talked about this in class a little bit this morning. Sometimes that passage is read and said, and it's said, see, we're just inherently evil. That's not the context of Jeremiah, the 17th chapter. What's the context of Jeremiah 17? Jeremiah is that last prophet. Just before Judah is getting ready to be carried away into Babylonian captivity. And why? Why is Judah about to be carried away into Babylonian captivity? The reason is because they had gone away from God. And they were wrong in their thinking and they were wrong in their feelings and they were wrong in their desires and they were going after the wrong things and they were going after the wrong gods. And so Jeremiah is saying, the heart is wicked and who can understand it? In other words, and we've probably said this before to ourselves, haven't we? How did I get here? You ever said that? You ever known anybody to say that? How did this happen? How did we get here? And Jeremiah is explaining it. The heart is wrong. It's desperately wicked. Do you recall from Genesis the 6th chapter? Before God destroys the earth with water? What he says about man, every thought and intent was only evil continually. That's all he thought about. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. We've gotten to this point. Our hearts aren't right. We think about the wrong things. We desire the wrong things. We go after the wrong things. We have forgotten God. And now our minds, our hearts are set on the wrong gods. And he says, who can understand it? Well, it's fortunate because in the very next verse, <laughs> verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. God knows exactly how they got there, why they're there, and what it's going to take to correct it. Israel, Judah, I won't take the time to read it, but had gone to even such an extent that they would sacrifice their own children. How did they get there? How did their hearts get to that point? And Jeremiah says, your heart is sick 
so through the prophets the only hope was renewal of that heart I want to go back to the book of Deuteronomy this time Deuteronomy the 30th chapter and about verse 6 because when they were still in the wilderness and Moses was leading them he talked about when they would come to this day that Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah or in Deuteronomy the 30th chapter at about verse 6 and the Lord God this is what he'll do and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all and so that all may live God looked down the road even though he had commanded them to love him I know what direction you're going to go and there's going to come a point in time where I'm going to have to circumcise your heart in the 51st Psalm which is about David and after he had committed adultery and after he had committed murder he pleaded with God and said create in me O Lord a clean heart in Ezekiel the 36th chapter Ezekiel speaks of a day when God will remove from his people the heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh see that's the same thought that Jeremiah is setting forth when he says there's going to come a time when I will make a new covenant and I will write my laws upon their minds and upon their hearts And that brings us back to the Shema. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Every day, they would pray, morning and evening, to devote themselves, their whole self, to Him. Their thoughts, their feelings, their desires, their future, their failures. Give it all to God. Because that's what it would mean to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But they had trouble with that. So in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 2, You are our epistle, written in our hearts. Written in our hearts. In other words, we love the way you accepted the message. We love the way it has changed you. And we have this affection towards you now. You are our epistle 
written in our hearts, but known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, that is, on the heart. That's what Paul's saying. This is that day and time. And this is that new covenant. And this is how God is writing His commandments on your minds and on your hearts. And that's what has made a difference in your life. And that is to be read and understood by everybody. Now I want to just share with you just a few passages as we kind of wrap this up. Because that idea is the same idea and the same concept that Paul uses in various letters. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, You turned from idols to serve the living God. They came to understand they were traveling in the wrong direction. That's what Paul means when he says in Colossians 3 and verse 1, Set your affections on things above. Because the gospel changes our desires. This is what Paul meant, or Luke, when he records about the Apostle Paul in Acts the 26th chapter, when God called Paul and he says, I'm going to send you to turn them from darkness to light. That's what Paul meant in Romans the 6th chapter when he says you've been baptized into his death but you're raised to walk in newness of life. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in Colossians the 2nd chapter even as we talked about this morning that circumcision was not of the outward flesh but of the heart. That's what Paul meant in Romans, the second chapter, when he says a Jew is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but rather one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. That's what Paul meant when he wrote the first letter to them, at 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, when he says, I delivered to you of first importance the gospel. How Christ died, He was buried, and He was resurrected. That's the message that changed them and changed their lives. And that's what Paul's explaining in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and about verses 2 through 5. He said, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not of persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Paul saying, I wasn't trying to arrive. <laughs> I was trying to deliver. I was trying to deliver the gospel. And that's not from us. He's saying that's from God. And that's the message that changed you. And that's the letter that God wants read, uh, read by all men. Because by so doing, He changes your thinking. He changes your feelings. He changes your desires. He changes your choices. And the old man is cut off. And you're raised to walk in newness of life. And Paul says, you're my letter. So in essence, whenever they're saying, Paul, maybe you need a letter. And he's saying, you are my letter. And he said, this letter is from Christ written by the Holy Spirit. And this letter can now be read by all men. That's the validation. So if we ever think about, do we want to be validated? You know how to be validated? Deliver that message. That's validation. I want to extend the invitation to any and all that are healed this morning. If you've never rendered obedience unto the gospel of Christ, we'd encourage you to do that this very day. If you've come to understand that He died for your sins, that you've been going in the wrong direction, you need to turn and go back to Him and to follow Him. If you're willing to repent, if you're willing to confess, if you're willing to be buried with Him in baptism, so that you can be raised to walk in newness of life. That opportunity is yours. Let us know while together we stand and while we sing.